for, for the month of August, uh, we've been working our way through a series entitled Why Church? And, and the goal of this series is to unpack the DNA uh, of what we're about, what we're hoping to see permeate the culture that we're trying to create here uh, in the body of Christ and then within the very community and the surrounding areas uh, as we are mobilized. And so this is for new people who are kind of checking things out, who are trying to see, is, is this a church that I can engage with? Is, is this uh, uh, a group of people that I can uh, share my life with for the glory of God very intentionally? Um, and then also, it's for people who have been here since the launching of this church two and a half years ago. So uh, if you're uh, one of those people that have been around since core group days in the log cabin up the street, this is for you. We need to constantly be coming back to the mission, vision, and values of the church, what we want to be about, because um, it's so easy for us to veer off the beaten path quickly. If you were around uh, over the summer for the series entitled The Seven, where we looked at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, you know that it doesn't take long for a church to veer off course from what she was first about when she was planted. And so uh, this is for everyone uh, who gathers with us over the course of this month. If, if you've missed a Sunday, um, I don't say this often, but I would implore you to go back to the website and listen to the messages that you missed. If, if you're wanting to know, what is this church about? What do I need to be about? What am I being called to? How am I being equipped and mobilized? Um, you, you need to internalize the stuff that we're talking about in the month of August. And so please go back and listen to the sermons that you missed. Pick up on that. We do, we, we'll spend hours and hours engaging nine season-long shows on Netflix and Hulu. Um, and so to ask you to listen to four messages, really three because you're here for one of them, um, if you're listening to this live, uh, is a really simple ask, a really easy ask. And so uh, we hope you would do that. If you weren't here, going back a few weeks, or if you were as a refresher, we began this series um, with a pretty philosophical, existential, lofty question, namely, why do you and I exist? Why, why are we here? What's our purpose? And I argued that for us to answer that question for us at a creature level, we've got to get a little bit higher up in altitude and, and answer the question, what is God about as the creator? Uh, what is his aim? What is his purpose in the universe? And, and I argued that the ultimate aim of God is actually to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. And the scriptures argue that. You can go back if you weren't here and listen to me plead my case for the God-centeredness of God. But at the end of the day, my argument was that if that's true, that doesn't make God narcissistic at all. It actually authenticates his deity. That if God were ultimately about the glorification of someone or something other than himself, if he were uh, to find satisfaction ultimately in someone or something other than himself, then whatever that person or thing is just might be God. And if that person or thing looks outside of himself or herself or itself, you just follow that trail of breadcrumbs until you get to someone or something that says, I can't go beyond myself. I'm the most supremely valuable being in the universe, and thus I must glorify myself and find ultimate satisfaction internally within myself. And so... Uh, the argument was for the God-centeredness of God, and, and where that fleshes out for you and me is if God is ultimately um, after his own glory, and, and if God is God-centered, and if that does authenticate his deity, here's what that means for you and me. It means that we're freed from the empty chase of self-exaltation. 
It means that we're freed from having to try to be the center of everything. It means we're freed from having to try to make a name for ourselves and chasing after that pipe dream that can possibly leave us with hope in the end. That I argued in week one that you and I need a Copernican revolution. That before Nicholas Copernicus came along in the 1500s, the majority of the world believed that Earth was the non-moving stationary center of the universe and that all the other planets and the sun revolved around planet earth which makes sense right because our planet is the one that actually has life on it so we must be the life of the party we must be the center and yet Copernicus argued that no the sun is actually the non-moving stationary center of the universe and all of the planets including planet earth revolves around the sun and I argued that you and I most of us need a Copernican revolution even those of us in the church who profess to be Christians we we need to be freed from this idea um, that the world revolves around us this idea that we're now on the stage in this divine drama that's been unfolding for years and years and, and so the main act must be in play now because we're here and the curtains opened on us but rather, if we believe that ultimately everything is pointing to God himself, then it frees us. That if you look at creation, creation itself, um, from supernovas to black holes, from galaxies to solar systems, from rivers and streams to mountains and valleys, creation sings of the grandeur of God. And then on a small level, in the most intricate of his designs, the way that a, a baby is formed in his or her mother's womb, the way that you don't even have to think about breathing, you just do it. That sings of the glory of God as well. But I argued in week one that uh, not Neither creation and all of its grandeur nor the most intricate of God's design sings of his glory in the way that the cross of Jesus Christ does. That the cross is the very center, the apex of God's glory on display in human history. It's everything that Jason was talking about earlier. That all of the scriptures uh, in the Old Testament point toward his coming. They foreshadow the coming of Jesus. And everything in the wake of his coming points back to his coming. His life, death, and resurrection. So that you can't even escape it in terms of the human calendar, that the very calendar of human history is divided into B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, that everything points to Jesus as the center of God's glory on display, and that that's actually meant to free us. Now, that's devastating if you desire to be the center. That's devastating if you desire um, to build a kingdom for yourself, if you want to be the main actor on the stage. And so, where's the hope in that? Well, here's the beauty. While we're free from the empty chase of self-exaltation, which is beautiful in and of itself, if you understand the gospel at all, you're also designed, and so am I, with great purpose. That if we go back to that space analogy, that while you and I don't get to be the sun... We do get to be the moon and reflect the glory of God in a very unique way. That when you look up at the moon at night, you know that you're not looking at uh, light that's created by the moon itself, right? That the moon reflects the light of the sun for all of the world to see. And in the same way that that's true, you and I are designed to reflect the glory of God in a very unique way. That uh, no one in here, if you look around... Uh, shares the same workspace as you, the same neighborhood as you, the same friend group as you, uh, the same flesh and blood family as you. Maybe some of those things are similar, but not all of them, so that you have a very unique purpose, that God has designed you and placed you where he's placed you at this point in human history, August 2015, 
at this place in human history, South Metro Atlanta, with great purpose in mind to use you in a unique way to reflect the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ. You don't get to be the center, but you have unbelievable purpose. God has designed you with great purpose in mind. And here's the answer to the question, why church? Because when we come together, we actually shine more brightly than we do when we try to do this thing in isolation. And so the purpose of this series is to look at three things that make up our DNA as a church. Three things that will cause us to shine more brightly for God's glory. And we've looked at two of these thus far. Namely, the values of the gospel of God, the community of God, and the mission of God. That if you not only understand these three things, but commit your life to being immersed in these three things, you will reflect more of God's glory in the world around you and will experience much greater joy as you align your purpose to your creator's purpose. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the first strand of DNA, namely the gospel. And my goal is not only to share the content of the gospel with you, the person and work of Jesus in light of the bad news of sin and suffering entering the world, but my goal was also to uh, make very clear that the gospel is not an entry ramp onto the highway of Christianity that we utilize as an instrument of conversion and then leave behind as we move into the fast lane and start grabbing one systematic theology book after another. Are systematic theology books bad? No, they're not. I've got dozens of them sitting in my library at home. They're good. But the idea that you could actually graduate beyond the gospel as, as if it's the shallow end of the kiddie pool uh, is absurd. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity that for the rest of your life, the goal is to uh, somehow uh, figure out more and more how the gospel is the power of God in your life presently, right now, to be able to answer the question, um, how is the gospel good news to me today, presently in my life, in the midst of pain, in the midst of great doubt, in the midst of skepticism, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of all of my approval issues, in the midst of my life coming unraveled and, and me not being able to white-knuckle it anymore? How does the gospel speak into those realities that you and I find ourselves dealing with that uh, I think the Apostle Paul had it right when he said in 1 Corinthians 15, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me remind you of that which is of first importance, namely that Jesus died your death and rose and conquered sin and death, your great enemies. And so our hope here is that we would be able to answer those types of questions. How is the gospel good news to you today? How is Jesus as Savior sweet to you today? How can you experience the gospel's power in your life right now? Now, here's the reality. Um, I fear that many of us can't answer that question. I think that's a difficult question. When we throw out the language of growing in the gospel... I think many of us hear that and we go, sounds like floaty, lofty, kind of up there in space language, Jamie. I don't know what you mean by that. When you say gospel, I can get that. Jesus died for my sins. I understand that kind of lingo, but what do you mean growing in the gospel? If you struggle with answering that question, you're in the perfect place right now. Because we're, we're seeking to answer that question as to how the gospel matters for you presently so that it's not just past tense bookend for my conversion and future tense bookend for that day that Jesus will make everything sad untrue, but actually matters between those two bookends immensely as you live your life until you breathe your last breath or Jesus returns. We're seeking to answer those types of questions in the context of our community groups as we get smaller and can dialogue about those things. So don't fret. 
rather respond by engaging at that level so that you can better begin to answer that question. Now, here's the reality. For those of you who are uh, engaged in that way, who have said, I want to be a part of a community group. I want to make a run at this. I want to seek to better understand how the gospel matters for my life right now. Um, If that's you, it's very possible that for the first few weeks, the first few months, you'll function as an enemy of the very culture that we're trying to create. Because at a heart level, none of us really enjoys getting under the dirt of our hearts and excavating areas of sin and unbelief so that we can see how the gospel speaks a better word. And so what you'll do, um, if you uh, have a human nature at all, is you'll be inclined to try to push it in the direction of, uh, let's talk theology, let's talk about uh, filling in the blanks with right Bible answers, um, and, and then let's talk about the the program that we can move forward uh, out of community group this week to become a better Christian at complete bypass of the heart. Um, Is theology bad? Again, no. Do we want to have right articulation of the scriptures? Absolutely. But if we use uh, the Bible and our theology to escape actual gospel transformation, then we've just pitted information against transformation as if there could be a dichotomy, as if those two could... uh, exist in the the realm of dichotomy. They go together, and and we want to see information then transform our hearts. And so the hope here is that we'll actually get below the surface of our hearts and see our hearts transform by the power of the gospel, that we can really begin to articulate at any time the answer to that question, how is the gospel good news to me today? Now, going back to last week, Experiencing the present tense power of the gospel in your life typically doesn't happen in isolation, which is why we spent last week talking about this uh, piece of DNA, the second piece, namely community, the community of God. That when the gospel is received, it binds a community together. And so I argued last week that if you're honest, you want community and you don't want community. That, that you desire to be known by people and to know others, and yet that terrifies you at the same time. And, and so we looked at the question, why? Why does that tension exist? Why do we want to know and be known, and yet at the same time, not truly? And, and I sought to answer that question by taking us through a biblical theology of community. And, and so we talked about the reason that you want community is because you're designed in the image of God who is a community. That Christians believe in a Trinitarian God, one God, yes, who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God didn't create you and I out of deficit. He didn't create you and I because he was lonely. He didn't create you and I because he had a deep need to be approved of. That before the foundations of the world, there was a perfect intra-Trinitarian love taking place between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That you and I were created by God for his good pleasure. And because we've been made in the image of God, designed to mirror God, it makes sense that we would be a people who would want relationships. We're created in the image of a Trinitarian God. That's why more than 1.2 billion people have a Facebook account today. To a degree, we want to know people and we want to be known by people. And yet at the same time, knowing people and being known by them terrifies us, if we're honest. Why is that? Because the reality is that the Bible doesn't end with Genesis 2. But if you go to the next chapter, we see that sin kills intimacy, thus killing community. That prior to their sin, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were naked and unashamed before one another. But in the wake of their sin, they sought to cover up their shame with fig leaves. Uh, Fig leaves represent metaphorically this barrier that, that comes into play as sin is brought into the picture between image bearers of God. 
but, but not just between image bearers themselves, but between the image bearer and God himself, which is why our first parents, Adam and Eve, hid in the garden from God, as if they could actually play a game of a cosmic hide-and-go-seek with God and win. And the story goes on. You and I, like our first parents, are designed to mirror God as a community. And yet, tragically, we, we run from community, afraid of truly being known. We'll put ourselves out there to an extent. I said this last week. It's why we'll Photoshop a Facebook image 18 times before we actually hit publish. It's why we'll, we'll type out an email and we'll do it dozens of times before we actually hit send because we're not comfortable with the raw version of what we want to say. We're terrified at being known for who we, we truly are. So we'll put ourselves out there to a degree. I've said this before time and time again here in the Bible Belt in, in our uh, Hyper church subculture under gospel subculture. We function like onions. There are many layers to us, and you got to peel back like 17 of those layers to get to the heart of who the real person is underneath. And so it's far more challenging, I think, to live as a Christian in this context than many others, even outside of the Bible Belt. Our sin robs us of joy that God intends for us to experience that can only be experienced in community alone. And yet, the story doesn't end with Genesis 3 either. We went on to look at last week the beauty that before the foundations of the world, God had a plan, a plan to restore us to our original image-bearing purpose uh, as a communal people, that the church is not an accident. The church is community redeemed. The church is God's plan to restore us to our original image-bearing purpose of mirroring his very being and nature as we walk together as reconciled people under the banner of the gospel. And think about it. What better display uh, of the unity of the one God and the diversity of that one God existing in three distinct persons than a, uh, than a diverse group of ragamuffin misfits like you and me who come together under the banner of the gospel and unite? And so I said this last week. What that means is that if you're a Christian, your relationship with Jesus ultimately is not personal. That's not to say that it it doesn't matter that you have a personal faith in the person and work of Jesus. That's not what I'm getting at. Uh, We don't become Christians by way of osmosis. Uh, It's not that our parents believed it, and so now all of a sudden we're Christians by association. We have to believe for ourselves. It's a personal faith in the person and work of Jesus, absolutely. But what I am saying is that Jesus didn't spill his blood to redeem us into isolation, to go hide into the shadows uh, alone out of fear of being known, that he redeemed us into a family, a covenant community. And so what that means, if that's true, is that the church is not one more ball to be juggled. I showed this graphic last week. Uh, It's not that the church is just a compartment with everything else in life and that when everything gets hard, we just determine which ball we're going to drop and it just might be the church. Uh, and, And the church is not off the chopping block any more than any other area of our lives. That's a shallow understanding of the church from a biblical perspective. Rather, the church is meant to permeate all of the various facets of our lives and see the difference between those two graphics so that the gospel comes to bear on all of those facets of our lives. So that we exist as a community at the hub of this thing called life and Jesus is right there with us. He's one of those stick people in the middle of the figure. Um, he, He actually rules sovereignly over all of us in the middle of that figure and he along with the community and wisdom speaks into our lives in all of the various facets so that the church plays a huge part in where our lives are going. Now, that's vastly different than the isolationist mentality of many, right? 
That doesn't work if you just bounce from church to church to church over the course of uh, your entire life. Um, some of you, that's your story. I get it. That's my story growing up. I'm not trying to demean you if, that, if that's where you are. But what I am saying is today, why don't we move towards something better? Why don't we press in and see what God might do as we engage with great purpose and share our lives with other people with great intentionality for his glory? That what I'm lobbying for is for you to commit yourself to sharing your life with others in this church for the glory of God. I'm lobbying for a culture in which we can help each other to experience the present tense power of the gospel in our lives. And I said this last week as we close, that if we commit ourselves to doing this thing, to living out gospel-saturated community, then others are going to be compelled by it. It's just how the gospel works, that the kind of gospel-saturated community that I'm arguing for and fighting for is, is strange on the one hand. It's absolutely strange that a bunch of people would come together who have nothing in common except Jesus and all care for one another, and yet that's super compelling at the same time. And thus, gospel-saturated community, by its very definition, is missional. It has an outward bent. It doesn't exist in and of itself for itself. That this whole idea that we could become a holy huddle over the course of time is very problematic. It's highly unbiblical. It's really not gospel-saturated community at all if, if it ends on itself. That under the banner of the gospel, the two must go hand in hand. And so we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning taking a look at this third piece of DNA, namely the mission of God. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 7, verse 34. That's going to be our launching point this morning. We'll look at a couple other uh, passages of scripture, but uh, this is going to be where we root ourselves and set a foundation for where we're going. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat uh, in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and flip open to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you. It's free. Church's gift to you. We want you to have a Bible and explore the truth claims of Christianity for yourself. Let me read this verse and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. It says this, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Let me pray. God, if I'm honest from the stage this morning, if there were a value that I would desire to skip in this series, it would be this one. If I'm honest, there's a, there's a large part of my heart that would love nothing more than to grow in an understanding of the gospel and then to flesh that out with a bunch of other people who profess to love you and to not face my own fears when it comes to living as a missionary for your glory, to not face my own cowardice, to not face my own biblical illiteracy, to not face my own gospel um, misconceptions. And so I've got to believe that there are many in this room who feel the same way. And so... I pray this morning that you would send a wrecking ball through uh, many of our misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian on mission, uh, that you would uh, rework our hearts if the very motive for even functioning as a Christian uh, on mission is faulty, and that as a result of our time together, that uh, yes, we would grow in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian on mission, but it would go far further than just an understanding, but rather that information would transform our hearts so that we would actually be a people who are outward focused, seeking to point more and more people uh, to Jesus and to his cross. 
So would you use us? Would you, Holy Spirit, do things that uh, I can't possibly do uh, during the course of the remainder of our time this morning? Would you illumine the truth of your word? And would you awaken our hearts and draw us into further faith and repentance for your glory? We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so this morning we're not going in the direction of rocket science. That was three weeks ago when we talked about philosophical, existential, lofty questions of our purpose and existence. Um, This morning it really is unbelievably simple. Let me start by asking a super simple question that gets right to the heart of the matter this morning. And the question is this. Are you a friend of sinners? Are you a friend of sinners? And, and I don't mean, this is not where you get that off-the-hook opportunity to say, well, human beings are all sinners, and I'm a friend of human beings. It's not just me and my dog going at this thing called life. So, yes, my answer to your question is, I am a friend of sinners. I'm talking um, under the banner of the way uh, Jesus defines being a friend of sinners uh, in the context of the gospel accounts that uh, if you read the gospels, you see that Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. We see it in Luke 7, 34. He was and he is. That uh, Jesus was a friend of the irreligious lost on the one hand, those seeking to find meaning apart from God through human autonomy. People like the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Uh, people like Zacchaeus, the thieving tax collector in Luke 19. People like the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. People who were wayward, who were uh, running in sin and rebellion, who were saved from their own wickedness on the one hand by encountering Jesus. But Jesus was also a friend of the religious lost, those seeking to obey all of God's rules in an effort to merit his acceptance and love. Uh, People like Nicodemus the Pharisee in John chapter 3. People like Joseph of Arimathea who gifted his tomb to Jesus when he was crucified. That that if you read the Gospels, they're filled with encounter after encounter of Jesus amongst the messy and the moralistic. Why? Because both need Jesus. That if someone asks you the question, do you want to be like Jesus, what would your response be? If you're a Christian in this room, that's a no-brainer, right? I think the answer is a resounding yes, I want to be like Jesus. But notice the disconnect that most Christians want to be like Jesus, the friend of sinners, and yet most Christians are not a friend of sinners. Most Christians, the longer they're Christians, become more removed from the unbelieving world around them. It's a strange thing that happens, right? It almost comes naturally, that it's incredibly easy for the church to become inward-focused, oftentimes in the name of that value that we talked about last week, community. We go, see, I'm pressing into this value. I'm pursuing this value, Jamie. So how could we, we have a problem with that? And yet again, you, you can't uh, dichotomize mission and community. The two go hand in hand. They must go hand in hand. Otherwise, it's not true gospel-saturated community in the first place. That We create holy huddles without even trying. It just comes naturally to us. It's safe. It's comfortable. And yet Jesus understood that you can't build gospel-saturated community without that outward missional bent. And so he drew his misfit band of ragamuffin disciples alongside of him right into the midst of the messiness of mission as a part of the community-building process. You catch that? He brought people into the messiness of the mission itself as a part of the community building process, bringing the two together. To be clear, when we throw out the language of being a friend of sinners, it it means actually knowing people's 
names. It means oftentimes knowing their, their hopes. It means knowing their dreams. It means knowing what keeps them awake at night. And ultimately, it means pointing them to the perfect friend of sinners, Jesus. See, I would argue that most of us think of mission as the Bible portrays it, the same way we think of community, going back to last week. That you want to be a friend of sinners, and yet you don't want to be a friend of sinners. That, that you desire to point people to Jesus, and yet it terrifies you, the thought of actually engaging that and pointing people to Jesus who don't know him. Why? We want to answer that question just like, like we did last week. Why is it that we struggle with this thing called mission? So for the remainder of our time, I want to give you two reasons that I think that is and then unpack those. Number one, a faulty understanding of mission, that we have great misconceptions about uh, what the mission of God is that he's calling us to. And then secondly, a faulty motive for for mission, uh, our drive for doing it, for engaging it in the first place. And so uh, let me spend the rest of our time just unpacking these things very briefly. Faulty understanding of mission. For some of us, I said this, you heard it in my prayer, that we need a wrecking ball to come through and just uh, destroy some of our understanding, our misconceptions, our preconceived notions of what it means to be a Christian on mission so that we can build on a firm foundation. And so my hope is to do that for the next few minutes. And here's how I want to do it. Um, I want to do it by addressing the who, the what, the when, the where, and the how of Christian mission, of gospel-centered mission. And then when we get to that second piece, the faulty motive, we'll look at the why. Why are we doing this thing? So very simple. That's where we're going. So let me just jump into those questions. The who of gospel-centered mission. The answer is this. The individual Christian as well as Christians in community. Um, Let me show you a graphic that that may be helpful. We'll put this up on the screen. Hopefully you find this helpful. Sometimes you're going to find yourself in pure gospel community. And what that means is that you look around and the environment that you find yourself in is filled with nothing but Christians. So if you're in a community group, maybe that's how your group is. Maybe uh, it's been a while since you've seen a non-Christian engage your community group. Maybe you've never seen that. So there's pure community that's taking place there. If you and your spouse, if you're married, are both Christians, then when you sit at the dinner table together, that's pure community playing out because we have two people who come under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ who are engaging uh, relationally and sharing their lives with one another in that moment. There are other times when we find ourselves under the banner of pure gospel mission. And so for some of you, maybe that's your workplace. Maybe you're the only Christian in your workplace. Now, that would be uh, really hard for me to believe in the context of the Bible Belt where we are here, but it's possible. Maybe you're surrounded by a bunch of cultural Christians, nominal Christians, Christians in name only, and, and you're following Jesus, and, and you're trying to point everyone around you to the person and work of, of Jesus. Maybe uh, uh, another example would be this. when you there, there are usually in every Starbucks, there are two cushy, comfy seats. You've seen these if you've ever been into a Starbucks. They kind of, they sort of face each other, but they're separated just enough that you don't have to engage the person in the other chair if you don't want to, but if you've ever sat in those chairs, it's a luxury moment. It's like when you find the first parking spot on the row at the grocery store, um, and, and so if you find yourself sitting in one of those chairs, and you look over, and the guy or gal in the other chair has a stack of books authored by Frederick Nietzsche, uh, Christopher Hitchens, and other atheists, and, and it's not for the sake of apologetics, but rather for the sake of, of building uh, his or her own worldview of atheism then you're in a moment of pure gospel mission. You and that person, and there's an opportunity to engage that should you choose to. But more often than not, I would argue, we find ourselves in the overlap. 
where we're surrounded by Christians and non-Christians alike. And this happens in both the organic and the organized. So this would be the organized. The church puts together, pieces together this environment for you week in and week out. And you come into this space. And, and I, would, uh, I would think it would be naive for us to say that everyone in this room is a Christian. That uh, we're probably in the overlap right now as we speak. Many of you probably are Christians, but there are probably some who aren't who are exploring the truth claims of Christianity. The same would be true if your community group... Uh, invites and welcomes non-Christians into that context. The church organizes that environment space for you, and and we see the overlap happen. But more often than not, not, it's in the organic moments that the church doesn't establish for you that you find the overlap happening. When you go to dinner, when you go to coffee, when you go to a movie with your Christian and non-Christian friends, your Christian and non-Christian family members, when you engage your colleagues in the workplace and and you have both Christians and non-Christians represented, when you go to neighborhood events, we see this overlap happen. Very simply put, when you look around and you see Christians and non-Christians both, you're in the overlap in those moments. And that's a good thing. We want quite a bit of the overlap to take place in our church. Because again, we don't believe that uh, you can separate the community of God and the mission of God nicely and neatly. That we want to invite non-Christians into our community and we want to take our community to non-Christians. That's the who. What about the what? Well, the answer to the what is this. The good news of the person and work of Jesus, very simply, that which is most essential is that people come face-to-face with the reality of Jesus Christ. And in order for that to happen, we must proclaim the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and, and what he's done for us. And so the question becomes, are you able to articulate the gospel? And I don't mean Jesus died for my sins. Is that part of it? Yes, absolutely. But again, it's absolutely critical that we can talk as a people about how the gospel is at work in our lives even now so that we're proclaiming good news that matters to people and meets them where they are. And so again, the question comes to bear, how are you experiencing the present tense power of the gospel in your life? What about the how of gospel-centered mission? The answer is this, both in word and in deed. Uh, One of the dumbest quotes ever, wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi uh, by many, he never said anything remotely close to this, is, is this, Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. That's absurd. That's not even biblical. That the very word gospel in the original language comes from the word euangelion in the Greek, which means good news. That news is a word to be declared. It must be declared that um, Christians in our day use this quote to argue for this idea of lifestyle evangelism, the idea that it doesn't matter what you say, it just matters how you live and how you love, which sounds really good in our culture. But the problem is this, if we only live God-honoring lives but don't unpack for people who or what drives us to live that way, they're never going to know it's Jesus. And in fact, I would argue that adherence to every other world religion outside of Christianity do a better job of living out their morality than we do. There's a reason that we lean heavily on the cross of Jesus Christ and say, I have no hope apart from you, Jesus, because we all realize that we're train wrecks who need a righteousness outside of ourselves. People in other world religions, adherence to other world religions, believe that they can actually live out a level of morality that would cause God to look upon them favorably. And so it makes sense that when people look upon you in your moments of of most God-honoring living, that they have no reason to expect that Jesus drove that in your life and in your heart. 
could have been any of the other plethora of gods of any of the other world religions. We need to declare what's causing us to, to shine the way that we do. Uh, but not only that, if we only proclaim the gospel but don't grow in obeying Jesus in ever-increasing ways, we're going to cause people to, to want to turn away from Jesus and his church. We'll repel people from Jesus. And thus, it's both. The goal is to practice what we preach and also to preach what we practice. Again, false dichotomy to try to separate the two. It's a both and. It's not one and the other. What about the where of gospel-centered mission? The answer is very simple. Everywhere you go, doesn't matter. Everywhere you go. That if you, if you go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, very famous passage. Uh, I believe most of our subtitles call it the Great Commission. You see these famous words come from the mouth of Jesus. He says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, at the risk of sounding super nerdy, which I probably already have at this point, so it's really low risk, the word that we translate go here in the original Greek is a participle. And what that means is that uh, probably a better translation of this verse would be this. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Going, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Or, as you go... Therefore, make disciples of all nations. It's not like you could decide to obey or disobey the command to go. We're not stationary beings. We're always moving. We're always going. None of us lives a stationary life. And so the idea is that as you go, wherever you go, you're called to make disciples. And what that means is that the mission field doesn't just consist of places that you have to get a passport stamp to get to. Is that part of it? Yes and amen. We, we don't want to, to belittle or minimize the global uh, work of missions in the world and pointing people to the person and work of Jesus. In fact, uh, Crosspoint Church has played a huge role in planting the gospel in Rio de Janeiro. And uh, we have a guy on the ground in Brazil right now who uh, is working toward the goal of planting 10 churches in the next two years that will point many people who don't know Jesus to Jesus. And we're for that. We, we support that monetarily. We support that by um, sending people and putting them on the ground and mobilizing them. Uh, if you're a person who has a heart for global missions, we're behind you. We're for you in that. We don't want to minimize that at all. But we do want to say that just as important are the places that you go every day. That that's the air that you live and breathe most of your life in, right? That most of us have this idea that I'll be a missionary that one week that I sign up for the church's trip, and then the other 52, uh, 51 weeks out of the year, I'm off. And I'll go punch the clock again for the next trip, and we've missed out on 51 of the 52 weeks of an opportunity to point people to the person and work of Jesus. We call those daily moments missional pathways, it's the places that God has uniquely positioned you, going back to the moon-sun uh, metaphor, that God's uniquely positioned you to point people to the glory of the light of, of Jesus Christ. And he's uniquely designed you and purposed you in that way. Think workplace. Think neighborhood. Think friend groups. Think places that you frequent. As you go, wherever you go, make disciples. Tell people about Jesus. And then lastly... The when of gospel-centered mission. And the answer is this. From now until the day you die or until Jesus returns. Now, 
most of us find ourselves on one or two ends of the spectrum in, in terms of our struggle here. Some of us struggle with the until we die or Jesus returns portion of such a statement. So we're going, man, I'll do this now, but there's coming a day when I'm going to retire. I'm going to go to a beach in isolation so that I don't have to be around uh, a bunch of crazy people. And I'm just going to live my life in isolation under an umbrella and, and just coast until I die. And for those of us who realize the messiness of community, there's something appealing about that, right, in our, in our human nature that comes to bear as we think that way. But think about it this way. The greatest opportunity that you may possibly get in your life to point people to Jesus is the moment before you breathe your last breath. That in that moment, people will hang on every word you say. And if you can declare, for me to, to live as Christ and to die as gain in that moment will grip the hearts of people who don't love and worship Jesus. If you can say in the moment that you find out that you have terminal cancer, as you process that with people in community under the banner of the gospel, and can say that it's better to be absent from the body and to be with Jesus, speaks volumes in ways that, that your life may not communicate even right now in your moments of, of greatest healthiness. That if you're a Christian, your mission is complete when you breathe your last breath or when Jesus returns to make everything sad untrue. Now, for some of us, our struggle is not there. It's, it's in the now portion of this statement. We think, as soon as I become more competent in my understanding of the gospel, then, then I'll live as a Christian on mission. Then I'll seek to point people to Jesus. And just so you know, as a Christian, you're never going to uh, master the gospel. You'll continue to grow in the gospel for the rest of your life. And in fact, if, if your goal is to master the gospel, if that's your goal, you're, you're missing it. That the goal is not to master the gospel. The goal is to be mastered by the gospel. Let, let me say it another way. I'll put this up on the screen for you. The prerequisite to sharing the gospel is not mastering the gospel, but being mastered by the gospel. Let me say that again because I think it's that crucial. The prerequisite to sharing the gospel is not mastering the gospel, but being mastered by the gospel. For some of us, this is where I think we're missing it. That, uh, this goes back to everything I've been saying for weeks now, that for some of us, our mission issue is really a gospel issue. That when I say the goal is to be mastered by the gospel, what I mean is that the goal is to be continually aware of and immersed in how the gospel is good news to you right now, in your life, that if the gospel is nothing more than a fact sheet for you, a bunch of bullet points to be memorized and regurgitated to non-Christians so that they can get their get-out-of-hell-free card like you, you're missing it. That the gospel should be mastering you today. That as you walk in community, you should be unsurfacing areas of sin and unbelief in your life. And that community that you're walking with should be helping to point you to how the gospel speaks a better word in the midst of that sin and unbelief, whatever it is. And that as the gospel is mastering you, present tense, as you walk in community, you just take that into the realm of the messy and the moralistic, like Jesus. That's mission. It's very simple at the end of the day. It, it, let me say it this way. Let's be another way I could say it. If you can lecture on a gospel that's not mastering you, your lecture is lifeless. Your lecture is powerless. But if you can share with others a gospel that's mastering you, your gospel is life-giving. It's unbelievably powerful. That's what it means to be a friend of sinners, which, which brings me 
to the faulty motive piece. We want to answer that last question of why. Why are we doing this? Why are we even talking about this? Why would we engage this thing called uh, missional Christian living? And I think the motive for many people is, is faulty here. I think it's built on a faulty foundation altogether. That uh, for many of us, our motivation for missional living is the pursuit of acceptance at the end of the day. Um, so that when we actually have those conversations with people, uh, we feel like we somehow have to sneak it in under the facade of humility to make sure everyone knows that we had that conversation today. We, we, we're so uh, fickle at a heart level when it comes to acceptance that uh, we use, we leverage this very value of mission in, in a way to attempt to get the approval of God and the approval of other people. And, and if If we're going at it that way, we're completely missing it. That the pursuit of acceptance is a terrible motive for missional living. Now, if we're honest, if we can remove, like, I don't know, 14 of our 17 layers for a moment and just be be honest in this moment, most of us in this room are, are in a relentless pursuit of acceptance from God and others. Even those of us who profess to be Christians and who believe deeply in the person and work of Jesus, that that if you're prone to wonder. From the gospel, that's what it looks like for many of us in this room, I would argue, that that we're prone to forget that we're fully accepted in Christ, and so we seek acceptance from God and other people by way of our moralistic efforts. And for some of us, again, we use mission as a means to that end. And here's what happens. When you do things for God because you think it'll merit his love and the acceptance and approval of others, here's what'll happen. You'll become despairing when it's been several months since you last shared the gospel with someone or invited them to a church service or to your community group. And on the flip side, um, you'll become self-righteous and arrogant and proud when you're doing it really, really well. That, that those are the only two options with respect to moralism. It either leads to pride when you're achieving it or despair when you realize that you can't possibly do it perfectly. Here's the reality. The mission of God should never be fueled by a pursuit of acceptance. Rather, the mission of God should always flow forth from a position of acceptance. I'm loved deeply in Christ And by way of his love for me, I'm compelled to tell others about his love for them. That Jesus loves me deeply. There's nothing I can do that would cause God to love me more, including sharing the gospel with a certain quota, certain number of people. And there's nothing I have done that would cause God to love me less, including failing at missional Christian living. That in Christ, I'm loved perfectly. I'm accepted perfectly. I have an identity and a purpose because of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. That when you get that, when you believe that, when the gospel is mastering you in such a way that you believe that, that your identity is rooted in Christ alone, when you're living from a position of acceptance in a community that's doing the same, then you just invite others into that. That's mission. Again, not rocket science. And what that means for some of us is that the takeaway is very simple. I've said it for a couple weeks now. That for some of us, the practical application to a sermon like this is to simply commit to a community group and to start experiencing the present tense power of the gospel in your life. Start getting mastered by the gospel. Again, if you can't answer that question, how's the gospel good news to me presently, today in my life, we want to walk with you in that. We want to help you figure that out. And so I would implore you to get in a community group. I'm going to unpack that in just a moment as to how you can do that. But be willing to be honest and say, I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest enough to say, I don't know what growing in the gospel means. 
That just sounds like floaty uh, theoretical language to me. I don't know how to tangibly ground that in my own life, to be willing to say, I don't know how the gospel is presently good news in the midst of uh, sin and unbelief and pain and hurt and, and, and everything else that's going on in my life. Let's figure that out. Let, let's, uh, let's figure that out in the context of sharing our lives together in community, and then let's not keep it to ourselves. That's mission. What we're seeking to cultivate here is very simple. This would be the summary of this entire series, I think. We want to create a culture in which people can actually experience the present tense power of the gospel in their lives, can rally around other people in doing so, community, and then refuse to keep that to themselves. Mission. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.